Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you here today. If you're new, if, you, if this is your first time, if you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. Glad you're here. We hope that today is a meaningful time for you. We hope that the next few moments is life-giving and, and hopefully uh, it feeds your journey, your spiritual journey, wherever that might be. Uh, I don't know where, you're, you, where you are in your walk with the Lord, but I hope that uh, we leave here from this place encouraged and uplifted, and so I'm glad you're here. My name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at ACF, and it's my privilege to welcome you and uh, joy to worship with you. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be spending our time here this morning. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, we're going to have some folks coming around here in just a moment, uh, and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And as you're finding your place in Matthew 5, let me ask you a question here this morning. I wonder if you've ever struggled to find your place. Have you ever struggled to find your place, maybe in a certain context or a community or a group, uh, or maybe in society in general? Maybe, you're, maybe you've just had a hard time finding your place in the world, and maybe you've struggled to find a place to belong because you know, your, your interests and your hobbies might be different from the people around you, or maybe your upbringing looked vastly different from the people that you associate with, and uh, maybe your culture, your ethnicity, your race is just is, is different, so it carries a, a, a different feel given the context that you find yourself in. I wonder if you've ever found yourself struggling to find your place. You know, for me, I've found myself feeling this tension of not fitting in and at various points in my life. In fact, the most recent case just happened a couple of weeks ago. My wife planned a surprise trip getaway to see one of our favorite comedians. He was coming in through the state, and so we went out, and his name is Sebastian Maniscalco. Anyone familiar with Sebastian Maniscalco, some of you, not, not a ton of you. Okay, he, he's just started getting big in the last couple of uh, years, and um, it just Nicole and I really appreciate It's all clean fun, you know, aside from some language, you know, he, he's, he's clean. There's, there's nothing crude about his, his comic routine. But you ought to know, um, he's an Italian-American. He's basically as Italian as they get, uh, just, just not from the motherland, just Italian-American from the Chicago area. And, and so all of his content, if you just kind of listen to his stuff, all of his content revolves around his Italian heritage. It's just, he talks about his upbringing uh, with an Italian mother and a Sicilian father and just his work ethics that he was taught and just it, it, the way he presents it, it's just hilarious, just real, real fun stuff. And, and so naturally, naturally, the kind of crowd that Sebastian Maniscalco draws are Italian-Americans. It's just, it's just the way it is. And, and so here we are sitting in this auditorium and I'm looking around <laughs> And all I see are big, overweight, dark-haired, white-skinned Italian-Americans. I mean, that, that's all I see. In fact, I look around, and I'm, I'm the only Korean. I mean, forget Korean. I'm the only Asian in the room. I don't care what Asian. Just pick an Asian. I was the only one in the room, right? I was, and, and I looked around, and I said to myself, boy, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Now, if you're a Christian, if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus... I think you may have experienced this same sentiment on a faith level. 
Uh, if you've been a Christian in any length of time, you may have wondered, even asked this question of yourself, where is my place in the world? You know, where do I fit in in the, in the world? Where is my place in society? I mean, even on a campus like ours, you might have, you might have asked that very question. I think, I think on a campus like ours here at PSU, it's so easy, if you're a Christian, to feel like a minority, right? In fact, I've had some of you say, some of my professors are just explicitly, blatantly, straight up anti-Christianity, anti-faith, anti-religion, right? And so I think it's easy if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, uh, right here, right here, 24-7 on a campus like ours, it's easy to feel like, man, I just, I don't know where I fit in. I've had many of you as students come to me and say things like, Dan, I... I don't really know how to interact with my non-Christian friends. You know, the truth is when it comes to my Christian friends and when it comes to my fellowship, I'm good. Like, I'm, I feel like in my comfort zone, I feel like in my element, but when it comes to my non-Christian friends, I don't really know how to interact with them. Some of us don't even have non-Christian friends. We're like, I, I don't even know, they're like aliens to me. Like, I don't, I don't know how to talk with them. I don't, in other words, I don't know how to show up in the real world. I don't know how to show up as a Christian in the real world. Now, thus far, Christians have interacted with the world in many di different ways. In fact, if I can break it down for you real quickly, I would break it down like this. In fact, I got a simple diagram to help us here. And, and this is going to help us set up for today's passage and today's message. When it comes to how Christians interact with the world, on one end of the spectrum, you've got Christians who say, the world is evil. Period. The world is evil. And because of that, they believe that their chief mission in the world and in life is to resist and fight the world. They, they go about living in this world with this mentality. I am here to resist all that the world has is trying to push on me as a Christian, and I'm here to fight against it. You know, and so when it comes to, to, to our perspective of the world, we say the world is evil, the world is bad, there's nothing redemptive about the world, and so we are here to, to resist. So when it comes to movies, we are here to resist and fight Hollywood. When it comes to, when it comes to anything referencing pop culture, it's bad, resist and fight. When it comes to secular music, resist and fight. In fact, growing up as I grew up in this kind of home where it was everything was about resisting and fighting the things of the world. And I remember as a kid, we had this minivan in the back row. There was a there was a headphone jack that you could put your headphone in, and it would block out. It, it would bypass this. The, the car speakers and it would pump the music into your headphones and I had the I had the power to change the frequency right like change the channel and so I plug in my headphone and um, you know I, I I like to listen to they called it Hot 97 blazing hip hop and R&B like back where I was like that that's in Staten Island in New York that's what it was I was listening to Hot 97 and you know and, and it was just the local rap and hip hop station and I'm listening to it and I I moved just slightly and the headphone jack yanks out and it starts pumping through the, 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 the loudspeakers. I mean, DMX just pumping, blah, 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 you know, like, and all this pumping through the speakers. And my dad flips around and he's like, what is this that you're listening to? And he just loses it. That is a resist and fight kind of mentality. When we believe that the world is evil, your natural response will be to, as a follower of Jesus, resist and fight. That's one end of the spectrum. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Christians who say things like, oh, come on now, it's not 
all bad. It's not so bad. You're making it out to be just something that it's not. And these Christians don't see the world as bad and evil at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You've got Christians on this end of the spectrum who are here not to resist and fight, but rather to embrace and conform, to embrace the world and conform to the world. Because they fear being labeled as a stuck-up, uber-conservative Christian, their chief mission is now to blend in with the rest of society. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be like that guy, you know, you know who's just against everything uh, about the world. I just, no, I'm here to embrace and conform. I'm here to blend in. And their chief mission is to adopt the ways of the world. And what you end up with is they end up looking a lot like the people of the land as opposed to the savior of their souls. And there's a great big problem there. And so they live as Christians. They identify themselves as Christians, but really there is nothing Christian about them. There's just another person living in the world. And so now here we are, caught in the middle of this tension. And in between these two extremities, most of us are sitting here saying, I'm not sure I want to be either of those. those. Those seem like terrible options. I don't think the world is all evil, and I don't think that the world is all good either. You know, I, I don't want to resist and fight, and nor do I want to embrace and conform. And so the question we're left with is, what is the middle ground? Where is the middle ground in all of this? I don't want to be about the extremities. I want to, be, I want to find a healthy balance. Well, in today's passage... Jesus tells us exactly how we are to interact with the world in which we live in. He shows us where our place is, actually is, in society as followers of Jesus. And what he does for us is he prescribes for us a new and better way to engage the world. He prescribes for us a new and far better way to interact with the world that we're living in. And it's not to resist and fight. And it's not to embrace and conform. He shows us the kingdom way to engage with the world. And so let's read today's passage. Pick me up in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. We'll put the text up here on the screen as well if you want to look along with us. Jesus says these words He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, Jesus is showing us that as Christians, our main task when it comes to interacting with the world and engaging with the world around us is not to resist and fight. It is not to embrace and conform. Rather, he shows us a new and better way, and that is to season and shine. To season and shine. Now, there are a few things I want to point out here about the seasoning and shining, and and as we'll unpack this, that'll become clear. But in order to do that, we've got to start from the ground up. We've got to start from ground zero. And so what I like to do is first talk about the identity of salt and light. The identity of salt and light. Now, I realize that sounds a bit odd, but go with me for a minute. 
I want you to see something important here. It's easy to miss this if you're not paying close attention. It's easy to kind of gloss over this. In fact, this is a passage that's so familiar to so many of us. In fact, even if you're not a believer, you may have heard people say, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, you know, and we could probably presume what that means and what Jesus is getting at, but I don't want you to miss the fundamentals here, the identity of salt and light. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, you are. Everyone say those two words with me this morning. You are. In fact, turn to someone next to you and tell them, you are. Go ahead right now. Tell them, you are. Now, don't complete that sentence, depending on who you're sitting next to. You are a pain. No, don't don't say that. That's That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you will be. You will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He is not giving us a promise here. This is not a statement of promise. He's not saying you must be salt and light. This is not an imperative. This is not a command that Jesus is telling us to do. He's not giving us, he's not saying you must have salt and light in you. He's not speaking of possession. He's not saying acquiring saltiness and lightness in us. He's not, he's not trying to coach us and say, come on, come on, come on. Try to be more salt. Try to be more light. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying without equivocation and without any skip in his breath, he's saying you are salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, what is the significance of that? Friends, Jesus is addressing the core of our identity. He is informing us of who we are. Not what we do, not what we need to strive to be. He is telling us who, he says, you are, this is who you are. He is speaking, he is calling out the truest nature of who we were designed to be. Folks, did you know that nowhere else in the entire Sermon on the Mount does Jesus address our identity? Nowhere. I mean, all throughout, this is the only section in the whole Sermon on the Mount where Jesus pinpoints and directs and addresses our core identity. Nowhere else in the sermon does Jesus use this kind of defining language of you are. He says a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is the only place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, you are. This is who you are. Now, Don't you find it interesting, maybe you will, maybe you won't, I I found it interesting, that in an age where we're all searching for our identity, right? Like the the word identity has sort of become a buzzword in our culture, right? Like living authentic lives and being genuine, being true to yourself, right? Like, you know, this this concept of identity, identity seeking is nothing new, And so we're all on this quest. In fact, my four years in college was four giant years of this quest of trying to figure out who is Dan Min, (laughs) you know, and I'm still, you know, 35 years old, I'm still trying to figure out pieces of who God has made me to be. And, And so even in your seats right now where you're sitting, I know for many of us, we're struggling with this identity piece. And don't you find it interesting that in the entire Sermon on the Mount, that spans across three whole chapters, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says a lot there. And when it comes to rooting our identity, he roots our identity in these two things, salt and light. He says, this is who you are. You are salt and light. 
I bet if Jesus were here, he would say to some of you, you're salty. You're not even just salty. You're salty. You just got to get out of here. He says, you're salty. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, be salty. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And now, I don't know if, you know, when you read the Bible, you always got to read the Bible with an investigative mind. Always ask why. Why? And maybe for, for you, you may have asked this, may, maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one who's sort of thinking this, this way. But, but I'm thinking to myself, why salt and light? Kind of a weird, I mean, why, why salt and light? Why not like trees? You know, you're the tree of the land. Like, that's, I like that, man. That's strong and sturdy, right? You are the mountain of the landscape, right? Like, you're, like there, there's, a, there's a glory to, to the mountainous landscape of, you know, there, there's some beauty in that. But why, why salt and light? Well, to understand why Jesus roots our identity in salt and light, we need to understand how the people of antiquity saw salt and light, when it specifically as it pertains to the purpose of salt and light. And so I wanted to spend just a few moments talking about the purpose of salt and light. We looked at the identity of salt and light. You are, you are, Jesus says, you are, this is who you are. But Jesus, tell me, what are the implications of that? What does that mean that I am the salt of the earth, that I am the light of the world? Well, Jesus says, I'm about to tell you, I'm going to tell you, give you the purpose of salt and light. You see, These were two things that the listeners of Jesus would have seen as, number one, everyday elements. This was not a foreign object. This was not, in fact, trees would have been a bad bad metaphor because trees were not a popular, you know, uh, uh, part of their natural landscape, all right? Like, so so this was an everyday element that was used in the lives of everyday people. But number two, they were absolutely essential, They were absolutely essential. In other words, salt and light in antiquity were things that were used every day of their lives for various purposes, and they couldn't live without them. They were essential. Well, how so? Well, let's look at salt real quickly. Notice Jesus, what he says in verse 13. Jesus alludes to the taste of salt in verse 13. He says, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. And so Jesus points out the common use of salt in everyday life, which is very much like modern day, served for the purposes of seasoning and flavoring food. Right? For those of you who cook, for those of you who, you know, who, you know make dinner for yourself and on your own, you, salt is a common use, a common household item that you use often in your cooking, and it's to bring out the flavors. And this salt was a common household item, not just here today, but back in, in the people of the, the ancient Mediterranean world. So you see, these, they, they were surrounded by all these different seas, and, and they would go around the banks of the seas, and these salt minerals would begin to form on the, on the edges of the seas. And so they would go out and collect them and mine them, and, and they would form these, these, uh, these salt minerals into salt that they can use in everyday life. It was to season their food and to bring flavor to their palate. And so we see one of the primary purposes of salt is very simple. It's one that you and I get, and even in modern day, it's to season food. But notice, notice that Jesus doesn't choose a random seasoning from the pantry here. It's not just to season. I mean, he doesn't say, you are the thyme of the world. You are the nutmeg of the world. You, you, are, you are the basil of the earth. No, no, he doesn't say that. Those are all great seasonings. But he uses salt specifically because not only does salt season, but salt also preserves, unlike any other seasoning. 
You see, the people of antiquity used salt to preserve their food from decaying. Some of you may know this. They would rub the salt on their meats and on their foods and store them in safe places, and they would wait for the salt to do its job. And the job would be to prevent the food from going bad. Salt was used as the primary preservative during that time. Now, Jesus turns to his followers who have used salt every day of their lives, who have gone out and collected these salt minerals from the edges of the sea bank and they use it to preserve and to season their food. And he tells them, now you are the salt of the earth. What Jesus is essentially communicating here is that you are the chief seasoning agent in the world and you are the primary preservative of the world. Eugene Peterson, many of you may know that name. He's the author of the message. He paraphrases Matthew 5, 13 this way. He says, let me tell you why you're here. Again, this is speaking of purpose. Let me tell you why you're here. And he ties it to this, to this identity of salt. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Listen, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. You see, when Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, what he is saying is the world in which we live in should be a better place because us Christians are in it. The world should be a better place because Christians occupy this world. Like how salt brings out the best in a dish, we are to be a people who bring out the best in this world. We are to season the world and bring the flavor to the world. And the question is, how do we do that? By preserving, by preserving the goodness of God in the brokenness of our world. By preserving the goodness of God in the brokenness of our world. Now, let me just clarify something here real quickly. When we're talking about being a preservative, first of all, that's weird to even just think that, like I'm a, I'm a preservative, but, but Jesus seems to be honing in on this concept of salt as, as being a preservative. And, and when we're talking about being a preservative, we're not talking about preserving the things of this world. Just, just to clarify, we're not talking about, there are a whole lot of things in this world and in our world, in our society that are not worth preserving. And, and, and so what, what we're talking about here is not preserving the things of this world, but preserving the ways of God's kingdom, preserving his views and his perspectives, preserving his scriptural and biblical standard, preserving God's heart for the world that he so loves. That's what we're talking about preserving. We're not talking about self-preservation or worldly preservation. We're talking about preserving all that is right with God in the midst of all that is wrong and broken in our world. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about preserving. In fact, I want you to think about it this way. When you think about being salt of the earth and, in, and, the, and the chief seasoning agent and the primary preservative in our world and how the world should be a better place because of us, I want you to think about it this way. You know, we just got done looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus, right? Blessed are the so-and-so, blessed are so-and-so, blessed are so-and-so, and just, just a few verses before this passage for this morning. We just got done looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus, and now I want you to imagine... If everyone in the world lived according to the Beatitudes of Jesus, whether they were a person of faith or not, whether they were a believer of Jesus or not, imagine if they just lived according to the Beatitudes of Jesus. In fact, Christian or not, and in addition to that, I would say, forget everything else Jesus said, just, just for a minute. I mean, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said a lot, and he gives us a lot of information, a lot of content. But for now, just forget about all of that and, and just focus in on just the Beatitudes, only the Beatitudes. 
If people lived according to the Beatitudes, imagine how differently our world will look. If people lived more mercifully towards others and extended grace more freely, how differently would our world look? If people, if people shed their pride and learned to live lowly and meek lives where they put others before themselves in a Philippians 2 kind of way, imagine how differently our world would look. Imagine if, our, if people all around us lived with this deep sense of conviction for purity of heart. Imagine how differently our sexual ethics would look in our culture. Imagine if people, if we had more peacemakers amongst us than potsters. Imagine if people, just imagine if people pursued peace amongst the people and communities and within different sectors of society. Just imagine how differently our worlds might look. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine that. If everyone in the world would just live according to the Beatitudes of Jesus, and that's it. You cannot tell me in good conscience that the world would fail to be a better place to live in. You cannot tell me that the world would fail to be a better place if people lived according to the Beatitudes of Jesus. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. The world should look and feel and be better because Christians occupy it. Because we as followers of Jesus exist. Now the question is, if the world will look no different if the Christian population all of a sudden vacated, we got a problem. We got a serious, serious problem. Because when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying, church followers of Jesus, you are called on this planet to be the chief seasoning agent to bring flavor to this world. And you are called to preserve the things of my kingdom here on this world. That's our purpose, a salt of the earth. Now, now, what about this whole light of the world deal? Well, this metaphor isn't too far off from the salt analogy. Light was another everyday element that was used to live, and not only was it used every day, it was essential for everyday living. In fact, for a people who relied on the agricultural climate, light was everything. Light was everything. In fact, there were, there were pagans that were worshiping a light God. I mean, light was understood to be essential for living, not just shining light in the home and, and shedding the darkness and, and, and giving you light in your, in your personal community, but light, even from a philosophical sense, light carried notions of good and evil when contrasted to darkness. Not, not only philosophical, but even from a biblical level, both in the Old and New Testament, life was often intimately connected to goodness, whereas evil was intimately connected to evil. First John tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. James tells us that God is the father of lights. He is the father of lights. First Peter tells us that we have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous Light. Jesus himself even refers to himself as the light of the world. And here he is attaching the same descriptor to the followers of Jesus. You are the light of the world. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, it's real simple. Light really only has one function and one purpose, and that is to shine. It's to shine in the midst of darkness to repel darkness and to push back darkness. And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he is essentially saying, sons and daughters of God, shine, shine. 
Go ahead and shine. Uh, Eugene Peterson continues on in his message version of this passage, and he says, you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Shine. The purpose of being the light of the world is to shine. Now, listen carefully, church. Do not confuse this kind of shining for the kind of shining we're told to do by the world. We are not to shine in the same way that the world tells us to shine. You see, the world tells us to to shine as well. The message is the same, shine. But we're told, hey, shine in all your beauty. Shine in all your awesomeness. Do you know how awesome you are? Go ahead and shine. Shine because you are shine worthy. You're perfect just the way you are. How many of you have heard that message before, right? Like people, people have said that maybe to you. Maybe you've even said that to you. You're perfect just the way. You ain't nothing you need to change about yourself. You're good. You're good. You just go on with your bad self. You don't need to change a thing about you. You're good. You're awesome. And so go ahead and shine. <laughs> now, while that message is certainly a feel-good message, it's not the message of Jesus here. Jesus doesn't want you to shine because you are shine-worthy. No, he wants you to shine because there is one who is truly worthy of all the shining in the world. He's not saying shine because I think you're awesome. He's saying shine, people of God, because there is an awesome God. He's not saying shine because you are great. He's saying shine because you serve and follow and worship a great God. He's not saying shine because we are shine worthy. He's saying shine because there is one who is worthy of all of our shining that we can work up and muster up. Shine, shine. In fact, Jesus says here in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, again, he's talking about our purpose as light. He's saying, let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The whole purpose of being light and shining as the light of the world is to point people to the glory, to the beauty, to the wonder, to the green. We just sang of it earlier this morning. Great are you, Lord. The point of being the light of the world is to shine our light on the glory, on the greatness, on the grandeur of our matchless King, That's where we need to be shining our light. And so people of God, shine, shine. But let's make sure our light is pointed in the right direction. Shine. You know, I often say, in fact, I had a meeting with a couple of students earlier this morning. I often say that our job as Christians is simple. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you have not subscribed to the Christian faith. First of all, we're glad you're here. We hope that you find a place to belong here in our church family and a place to call home. But, but, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just clue you in as to what I believe is the simple job of a Christian. The simple job of a Christian is to be a signpost. That's it. It's to be a signpost. A signpost that points people to Jesus. You see, I think in our, in our, in our Christian circles and in our churches, we talk a lot about evangelism, right? Evangelism, this, and coming up with new tactics and new methods and all these, all these things. And I've, I've been in those conversations. I've contributed to those conversations. You know, and, and we talk about all of these things. And somehow I think, I think in that conversation, we lose sight that the power isn't in the, in the method. The power isn't in our approach. 
The power isn't even in us. We, we can't. We don't have the power to change anyone's lives. All we are called to do is shine our light on the one who is worthy of all the shining. Our job is to be a signpost that says, I don't have the power to heal. I don't have the power to appease your pain. I don't have the power to help you in this circumstance, in this situation. But friend, I know someone who does. Let's go to the cross together. Let's go to Jesus together because he does. He's got the power. He's got the ability. We as the light of the world are simply called to be signposts that point people to Jesus. And so Jesus gives us our identity. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And he shows us our identity and forms our purpose. And then it's to season and preserve and shine in the world that we live in. I just want to give you some final thoughts as we attempt to land this plane here. We talked about our identity as salt and light being linked to our purpose as salt and light. Our identity, we are salt and light, are intimately linked, intricately linked to our purpose as salt and light. Now, this is important that we get this. In fact, this is so important that Jesus gives us some clear warnings on this in this passage. Friends, Jesus seems to go so far as to say, if you're not walking in your identity and you're not fulfilling your God-given purposes, if you're not seasoning the world and preserving the qualities of God's kingdom, if you're not shining the light on the goodness of God, you are useless. You might as well be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. Wait a second, I thought Jesus was a good shepherd. This kind of sounds like a jerky shepherd. I mean, like, where's the good shepherd who tends to me and cares for me? What are you talking about? How could Jesus say, I'm useless? The world tells me I'm awesome. What what are you talking about? That Jesus says, I'm useless. He says, you are no good. You are useless and you're no good. You're, You're just good for garbage to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. It sounds harsh. I know. I know. It sounds incredibly harsh. Even as I say it, I cringe. I I get uncomfortable saying that. It sounds incredibly unloving. I know. But this is actually the most loving thing Jesus could have said here in this passage. You're like, I'm sorry, come again? What? Like, I I lost the love piece. I I didn't see that. I didn't catch that in the useless part. Like, I'm still hung up on Jesus thinks I'm useless. Like, what what do you mean? This is the most loving thing Jesus could have said. Hear me, hear me. It's because of how much Jesus loved the world that he said what he said. Sometimes I think we forget that Jesus said, you are the salt of not your fellowship. He doesn't say you are the salt of your family. He doesn't say you're the salt of your dorm or your apartment. Now, by all means, be salt in all of those places. But he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light, not of your friend group. You know, you're, you're not the light of, you fill in the, he says, you are the light of the world. Jesus said what he said because he loved the world so deeply. Why do you think Jesus would want us to season and preserve the world? Why? Why do you think he wants us to shine the light of God in a dark and broken world? It's because he loved the world. 
It is simple, and it is a simple fact that Jesus loved the world. You see, Jesus doesn't resist and fight the world, as some of us Christians tend to do, and he certainly didn't just embrace and conform to the world. Jesus came to seek and to save the world that was motivated, the chief motivation for him coming and seeking and saving the world was single and single only. It was driven by love. It was driven by love. And he's continuing to do that work today because he still loves this broken world today. He does. And you want to know the crazy part? Here's the best part. He wants to use you and me to show the world just how much he loves it. And that's why he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so church, can I submit to you? It's time. It's time that we embrace our identity as salt and light. Forget about all what you root your identity in. Jesus says, your identity is salt and light. It is time to embrace our identity as salt and light and fulfill our purpose as salt of the earth and light of the world. I believe the world can be a better place. I believe this campus can be a better place if we adopt as salt of the earth and light of the world this new and better way to interact with the world around us.